It's bad ink, Jam, but not as we know it. Hello, cuz this is Bing. Welcome to the Bashcast, brought to you by BookieBashing.net, betting at 100.1 and above. This is Bashcast episode number 168. This week we have Matthew Wiley on the podcast, host of the Golf Landia podcast and co-founder of Green Square Golf. It is 10 minutes to 4pm on Friday, the 26th of March, as I check my watch. Where's that gone? Coming up on the Bashcast this afternoon, we talk about that Game Center exchange trading project I was going to talk about last week and uh, didn't have time, ran out of time, so we'll do that this week. Uh, have a look at favourite and underdog performance in the English Premiership and the top five leagues in Europe, both this season and in the last ten years. And as mentioned after the break, we're joined for a chat with Matthew Wiley. No silly song this week. Um, a little bit of feedback over the lockdown period, almost overwhelmingly negative. One of it was that um, one of my biggest issues is that I have to grow up, so I'm going to stop doing the silly songs. Another was that this is just a, an hour-long crap advert for BookieBashing.net. So okay. <laughs> I mean, I thought when I started this 168 episodes ago this is just a personal diary i'm talking into a microphone it actually helps me clear out my thoughts you're welcome to listen to it or stop listening to it if you want to i happen to own bookiebashing.net with a couple of other nice gentlemen duncan and lee uh, and make some of the tools and some of the things i bet available on there so i might mention it once or twice so yeah crap advert or not not We'll move on with it, but we'll grow up and stop doing the silly songs. We did um, miss going across three um, winners on the golf because of uh, lockdown, put an end to the podcasts because I was at home with my daughter. And then as soon as schools went back, I moved house, which I've been trying to do for 18 months, but I moved house the week after lockdown. Well, schools opened, lockdown's still going on. And so it's like... Yeah, I can get back to work. No, I've got to pack everything I own into a box uh, and then move house. And then on the day, it was a calamity where our buyers moved in. Literally, their furniture was going in, but our sellers were still living in their house. There'd been some sort of... So we were homeless uh, for about two hours. But it didn't. we didn't know that they were leaving that day. It was like, we're going to be on the streets with all of our furniture, all my wife's furniture, we have 118 boxes, and I think two were mine. Uh, maybe 70 were my wives, and the other 48 were my wives, plural, and the other 48 were the kids. And when we unpacked them, the kettle was in the 118th um, box. I kept thinking, I'm just going to go and buy a kettle, and we'll have two kettles in the house. But I, every time I thought that, I was like, you know it'll be in the next box you open, 
You know you'll buy a kettle and it'll be in the next box you open. And it wasn't. It was in the 118th. It was literally in the last box. That's my moving house story. So we missed three winners. Kevin Nahr, um, Harris English, uh, Tyrrell, you can leave your hat on, hat on, managed to win. I, I got that. I, I just preempted that a month too early when I thought he was going to win in America for the Masters. Um, and so I can't put, you can leave your hat on again. Just sad. But at least I can shout, Kevin no, Kevin no, a Kevin no, Kevin no, no, no. Go on, Kevin. Kevin no, a Kevin no. Kevin no, Kevin no, no, no. Kevin no, Kevin no, a Kevin no, 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 no. Harris English, he's gonna shoot one less than you, Harris English. Can I introduce you please to a lump of putteries? Put one, drive one, chip one, drop one. Hook it, Kevin now! A Kevin now! A Kevin now! Alright, 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 alright. Okay, 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 okay. Listen, I heard that on the radio and then I was singing along Kevin Na and Harris English and I had grand plans to overlay the ending, which is big in Vindaloo by Fat Lairs, with lots of Kevin Nahr, English, Kevin Nahr, English, Kevin But then halfway through doing it, it's like it's really irritating, that song. It's half uh, sort of England anthemic, half unbelievably irritating. So uh, point made. And also they won in January. It's mid-March. I've spent the winnings. The winnings are gone, so I'm, I'm not. I'm actually not that excited anymore. Like Kevin now, Kevin now twice winner, by the way, for us now. Is there anyone else that's done that? I don't have the data in front of me, so I'm not going to look. Um, let's uh, kick off with brief look at the game center. You'd have thought I'd have been prepared and got it in front of me, but I moved house. I don't know where anything else. So I've got the wrong mouse and I'm actually recording the Bashcast on a different computer. So that's why it's not prepared and this one's so slow as it opens. The Game Center is a tool that we have on bookiebashing.net that has been in development for about 18 months. And when we started, we didn't know if we were going to get to a reasonable end point, but we have. And it's lovely when things like that work out, isn't it? It's taken... Um, uh, four serious iterations, although within each version uh, there have been a number of different, you know, loads of different sub-versions to get to 4.1. Um, and here's what I always wanted to do, right? A lot of um, advantage play, especially the stuff we've been doing, we don't ever uh, price anything up ourselves because there are experts who are cleverer than us than that from horse racing um for where people have access to trainers and just information that we don't to huge syndicates in um shaping money in the premiership where we can't pretend that we know more than them i mean if we were to attack something like uh odds compilation for the premiership odds we would have to leave everything else alone so just focus in that one area 
because it's such a complicated thing. And even then, your word against the other big syndicates, it's a really tough battleground to go into. Um, so we don't odds compile, but at the same time, we, we, do, we do benchmark. We take, we take bets and we say, this is a good bet because we think the fair odds is this, because we are benchmarking against X, Y, or Z. The different places we're benchmarking are um, the bookmakers prices themselves or the exchange prices. The exchange prices uh, doesn't tends to have less bias. There's still plenty of bias on the exchanges, but you still have an issue there that you're looking at um, you know, a number of different options. Do you look at the back price, the lay price, the last price match, the midpoint, what happens in gappy markets, you know? Um, and especially if you're trying to run a series of calculations in a football match, if you start um, putting an uncertain price into a calculation with another uncertain price and another uncertain price and a fourth and a fifth, what happens is that you're compounding the margin of error that exists in those fair odds. And when you're betting to thin EV of 105 to 110% and you're starting to compound unknowns in margins, it, it can start to affect your long-term results. Into the uncertainty can start to affect it. It would be much better if we could just have a precise figure, not a lay price and a back price and a last price match and whatever, just a figure, you know? If I'm rolling a dice, I know that the fair odds on a non-biased dice are 0.166666 of any number coming up. So uh, if, I, if it was an exchange market, perhaps if, even if it was an efficient one, that would be 16 to back, 17 to lay, last price match, 16.5. Well, w which is it? It's much better to know that it's 16.66666%, isn't it? Right? So that's what we wanted to do for um, football markets. And football markets are a funny old thing. A funny old thing, because if you open up William Hell or Skybet or anything like that, and you have a look at the millions of markets they have, you can sort of um, categorize them into two different types. Um, you have um, secondary markets that are based on uh, score lines and goals, and then you have uh, tertiary markets that are based on goal scorers and cards and everything like that uh, and corners and so let's separate out the goal scorers and the corners and the cards we've already looked at the corners and cards in fact and goal scorers is an ongoing background project that's proving to be a little bit more difficult than you would believe to get fair odds for them but let's just have a look at what you can do under um, just goals you can do so many things I mean for starters you can create a correct score market but if you've got the exact correct score market, if that's your starting ground from your from somewhere, then you can do anything. Because if you've got nil-nil up to 2020, you can work out the team, the, the basic, number one, the match odds, because you just add up 1-0, 2-0, 3-0, 4-0, whichever team, uh, all the way up to an insignificant amount. So having this information is really valuable for a number of reasons. You can benchmark more accurately, but also you can play around on the exchange. If you're first into a market or into a gappy market, you know what the fair odds are. You can easily trade either side of it, and you know you're getting value. You can even trade. You can market seed. 
You know, a, there's thousands of games out there. Just pick a League One game, Rotherham versus Exeter, and open it up, and there's your empty match odds and both teams to score, or um, perhaps the over 4.5 goals market is empty, or perhaps the, the second half winner market, or the Asian handicaps are a liquid well you can go in there and you can trade either side with a back or a lay knowing exactly where that f- the fair odds lie and all of that comes from knowing what the correct score market is the question is how do we know what the correct score market is right so we have um um xg for every game so that's on the goals page that's um a predefined process that comes up with the expected goals in the game and we split them we split the expected goals in a game towards the favourite and the underdog based on their match winner prices. And that's pretty... All of that process has, has been sort of um, proven and is legitimate. Um, the only small issue we have is that at outlier prices, and this is, for example, England versus San Marino, um, we have a very small data sample size to draw on of teams that go off at 1.01 to split the XG. But for the majority of matches that that aren't in the 99.8th percentile, um, we've got a historical sample size that's like, okay, if if the odds are 1.1 for the favourite, then um, take the XG for the match and split it. I don't know, 80% for the favourite and 20% or whatever the database says, right? And it's worse for most games. So we know the expected goals. We can create a, an ex, a correct score market because you create expected goals in a game using the XG and a probability distribution. The question is, what is the probability distribution? It's it's similar to Poisson, but there is bias in nil-nil in many games. And for a long time, we were like, how do we work out this bias? Uh, and the answer was staring us in our face. And the answer is, we don't. Um, we're working under the assumption that we can never know more than the market makers, the syndicate money, the money that's on the exchange. If the exchange is saying that nil-nil is 16.5, we're not in a position to say that it's 16 or 17. They're working off XG, which is the same as ours, but they're applying... Factors that affect bias for nil-nil that we can't possibly know about. So let's just use this. Let's just hinge the market always against the fair odds in the exchange. So we create our own correct score market. We then look at what the, the correct score market is from fair odds from the exchange, often of which is biased. And then we calibrate our correct score market, which, by the way, is always very close but never exact to the exchange anyway. Uh, it just doesn't have that bias. We then calibrate our correct score market. So it will always sum to one. So it's always a completely efficient market with fair, uh, fair odds for each one. And we will use all the information that we have from our own XG, our own splits, and also the correct score market that exists under the exchange. And the combination of all of that means that there is no more information that we can possibly get our hands on that can help shape the correct score of this market. We can go from nil nil to 3-3, but we can also go up, as was useful with England last night, to 7-7 or to 20-20 or any score up to 20 for both teams. And then you over 20, you're looking at 
so, something that happens so infrequently that it has real no no bearing statistical effect. It's a black swan. Um, it, um, we, let's just focus on what we can model. So we've got it, uh, and we won't deviate. The credit score market won't deviate from the exchange. And if the exchange is completely empty, we sit with our XG projections. And then if the exchange credit score market starts to fill, we then switch over to that. So it's really powerful. Uh, and um, we've got not just the correct scores, but we can now do over-under goals. I've gone up to 8.5. But there's a little grid there. There's a correct score grid. If you want to go over, nine, over 9.5, just select all the all the correct score options on there. Um, first half winner, half-time score. Half-time score has no bias, by the way. It's really weird. Uh, you've got the XG for the first half. It's always bang on, poisson. Um, even the nil-nil. I don't know why bias in the first half... I've never figured it out, but there's got to be a reason why there's no bias for the correct score market in the first half, but there is for 90 minutes. It's, a, it's an odd one. Second half winner, team to win and over bloody blah goals, team to win and under bloody blah goals. And I used a lot of these on the weekend when Tottenham played... When Tottenham played someone. Um, Fulham? I don't know, I can't remember who Tottenham played. Um, but they won 2-0. Uh, and I was uh, just sitting... I'd put up some... I'd, I'd got one screen, I've got the Smarkets market, because I'm 0% there. Uh, and um, there's a lot of markets that were quite empty there. Like, team to win an under 2.5 goals. Spurs to win an under 2.5 goals. Um, so I just put up... Uh, trade of 2.2 knowing that the fair odds were close to evens and it went um and i had um oh there was another fun one right um spurs or team to win and both teams to score and team to win to nil and they're both in the same market right they're both in the both team team to win and both team to score market it's just one's team to win yes and both teams to score yes and one's team to win and both teams to score no take both of those uh, and together, they should be the same as the match odds because there's no other way than you can win other than to win to nil or to win and the other team scores. There's no other way of winning. So Spurs' match odds were 2.46 in this game on the weekend. Come on, who were they playing? Let me just go back to Sunday. Sunday the 21st. Uh, they were playing Villa. They were away at Villa. That's it. The dreadful, dreadful Aston Villa. Um, so they were 2.46 in the match odds in the in the extremely efficient hundreds of thousands of millions of trillions of pounds traded uh, 1x2 market. Um, and the earlier in the day, the both teams to score market, match odds of both teams to score is empty. So I put some backs up there in the hope that they would be traded and had a few hundred pounds traded. Nothing significant, but I had... The equivalent at the point of kickoff of um, two point seven four. When you took both prices, turn them into probability, add them together, then I was getting two point seven four on Spurs, who were two point four six, and they had been all day. Um, so just a little bit of trading and a little bit of knowledge of what the fair price needed to be uh, allowed me to get. I don't know what is that. That's like a ten percent equity bet right there on the on the win, and they won. So of course I'm t- telling you about it. And I've had a few that I've lost as well, and we'll come into things that are losing in a, in a little bit. But this um, 
this game center can now essentially allow us to work out anything that involves just goals. Um, either team to win in over 2.5. It's a very common pick your punt that Betfred have. Either team to win in over 2.5 and over 3.5. Um, that they don't change the odds of when the over 2.5 price gets driven down. So it's often a very good value bet it's worth looking out for. Um, there's a couple that are scenario dependent, which is win both halves and um, score in both halves. Uh, by scenario dependent, I mean um, there are, different games have different scenarios and different strategies going into them. In a World Cup final, if you're 1-0 or 2-0 up at halftime, you have an incentive to park the bleeding bus in the second half. Same in a relegation um, match. But in a mid-table dogfight between two high-scoring gate teams that have got really nothing to play for, then they're not going to park the bus. And so um, the score both halves and the win both halves calculations do need to include scenario coefficients, but they don't at the moment. They assume that both halves are independent and what happens in the second half has no has had no effect on it by what happened in the first half. And that's not true in every game. How are we going to add scenario planning into the coefficients and the algorithms? I'm not sure, but we'll find a way. Uh, it's a job for the future. Um, which is another thing about why I think Poisson is perfect on just the first half, but when you extrapolate it to 45 minutes, it introduces bias. That The, the bias that is coming in over 90 minutes, is, which is why Poisson on XG doesn't equal the correct score market at 90 minutes, that bias will be entirely down to... Um, the scenario of the game um, and in some games where there is nothing to play for um, and the teams are just going to go for it and no one's going to park the bus it's probably the part the bus coefficient will be a good name for it in the future um, there'll be zero effect you just take the xg of both games apply pass on to the correct score market and you will get exactly the correct score market that's on the exchanges and then in other games that scenario that part the bus coefficient is um slightly larger because a team has a reason um, to not give a lead up in the second half and that's where the bias of nil-nil will come in. But look, there is thousands of games on the exchange. I'm looking at the exchange just today, right? We've got the Colombia Primera B, we've got the Costa Rican Liga de Ascenso. You know, what's the game in that one? That's, um, that's a big match at 9pm tonight between AD Barrio Mexico versus 11 de Abril. Seriously, that team is called after a date. 11 de Abril can be nothing else. What a bold thing to call a football team. I'm going to have a football team. I'm going to call it the 26th of March. <laughs> the 26th of Marco. Um, but go to that game on the exchange. I'll tell you now, I'm not going to bother doing it right now. Just have a look at it yourself. Go to that exchange. None of the markets are going to be liquid. And so if you wanted to, you can be the one that goes and sees all of those markets and see if you can trade them and make a little bit of money um, from whoever else is on there. Uh, yeah, so the Game Center, I'm really proud of it. It's coming to fruition. The next job is going to be to tie it up to the advanced calculations on the bet tracker. There's a little bit of work in the background that needs to go there to sort of send the information back and forward, keep it live. But uh, that stuff's not important. It'll, it'll, it'll be there by the summer. And um, um, yeah, it's a really cool and powerful tool. It's probably my favourite tool on bookiebashing.net at this moment in time. It's not an advert. 
mean, do I sound too defensive? But it's not an advert. It's it's my diary how I get what I'm doing and the tools that I'm doing, and I'm, they're available. If you, you be, I know that. There, but oh, no. I don't think I can win. I was going to do a mean tweet feedback thing uh, on the Bashcast with all the feedback that came towards in my direction, but then it got some of the feedback got a bit dark, and so I decided that ignoring it was the best thing. One of my favourites, though, and this this isn't recent, this was from a long time ago, was from somebody who complained how awful this podcast was uh, and and then said that I think that I'm uh, on QVC as a shopping channel presenter, which um, it, it was su- it's such a confusing bit of feedback. <laughs> it's stuck in my memory. And when I talk to people in the supermarket, I, also, I often think of myself as a presenter on QVC. So UK football in 2021, we talked last week about um, betting on goals, corners and cards. It's been tough through lockdown because there has been a decrease in action um, and the bookmakers haven't adjusted their odds. Um, so betting unders would be great. No, none of us have done that, to my knowledge. I mean, I've had a few under 2.5 goals, lucky 15s, but I haven't really sort of focused hard or released any tools or anything like that to look at and identify the unders. And um, uh, But it reminded me that last year... Um, I looked at fave dog performers, favourite and underdog performance in February of 2020. Uh, And the reason I did that was that a lot of the boosted trebles, so these are trebles that bookmakers do, uh, they'll take three teams and they'll boost the price of all three of them winning. And they'll boost it from six to one to eight to one. Uh, And they were losing and we are benchmarking them against the exchanges, which are shaped by the wisdom of the crowds, and we're getting 110% EV over the price you would get on the exchange, and they're all losing. And looking into the information of the data last year, they were all losing, mostly because a lot of the favourites were losing. Um, There's a lot of correlation between the performance of the favourites in the Premiership and the season-long profit-loss of boosts. Because we can make assumptions about the boosts from UK bookmakers. They primarily focus on matches from the Premiership. Not all of them, but most of them. And they primarily focus on the favourites. Not all of them, and most of them. They focus on the favourites, because if the average odds of the teams are evens, then already the treble is going to be 7-1, to one, and the bookmaker wants to limit the liability exposure on these um, plus EV bets, plus EV for us, negative EV for them. Um, and so they don't want to put too high uh, odds of the outsiders so that the bets, you know, five to one outsider, five times five times five, or six times six, six times six is 216, 215 to one. So they don't want to be paying out, you know, even if they put a pound on it, they don't want to be paying out 216 pounds when that comes in, one in 216 times. So they... Um, they focus on the favourites, and last year the favourites have been losing. So we, I've just updated it, and in twenty, well, if you look at the ten-year graph of the Premiership, what you see since twenty ten 
is that Favors have done really well. Uh, there was a bad season. Looks like it was around about 2014, 2015, where everyone lost. But since about 2015, everything had been winning. Week after week, month after month, favourite after favourite, always winning. Up until Newcastle played Southampton on the 20th of April 2019, where they won 3-1 and they were... 2.62 to win that match. They were the faves. And that was the peak. And if you'd stopped betting on favourites at that point and you'd been betting on just a blanket strategy of betting every favourite in the Premiership from 2010 to that point in April 2019, you would have been £20,000 up, about maybe £22,000 up. And that was the point where everything started losing. And from April 2019 through to February 2020, they'd been losing so much. I did the blog on it. Uh, and you would have been down to about £16,000 profit from your 22. I've just updated it and you would now be down to about £10,000 profit. Uh, they have been losing at a, twice, a rate twice as fast as they were um, last season. Uh, you have Manchester City, who were 1.08 against Villa, getting thumped uh, 6-2, or whatever the scoreline was, early in the season. And so it, it's not just been bad, it's been, all, it's been the worst ever uh, in 10 years. Uh, these graphs are up in a blog, uh, bookybashing.net slash... 2020-21 fave dog performance. It's not an advert. Um, so what do we do? Well, look, the strategy is sound. It doesn't make boosts negative EV. Boosts by themselves can't be negative EV. Well, they can. So that's a blanket statement that obviously isn't true. Many boosts are negative EV. What I'm saying is that the strategy, the simple strategy is, can we get a price higher than the prices on the exchange, the wisdom of the crowd, guys, right? If we can, then long-term we'll make money. Short-term, there's going to be a significant uh, long losing runs, and the losing run that we're in just now is the longest losing run for favourites since 2010. It could be even further back, because I just started the analysis in 2010, because that's where I could get data from, uh, prices from, right? So I'm just going to go out there and say lo longest ever. Certainly since um, April 2019, it's just been favourites losing, favourite losing, favourite losing, and because there's a correlation between um, um, boosts uh, and favourites, uh, that boosts have already have been losing. So what should we do? Um, should we stop betting on the boosts? Should we stop betting on favourites? Should we start betting on underdogs who have seen uh, positive returns since 2019, since that Newcastle match? Um, quite a decent one as well. The answers to all of these are no. The reason is uh, gambler's fallacy suggests that we think that these patterns from the past have any effect about what's going to happen in the future. The only thing that matters is how they're pricing up these prices. And if we think that they're wrong, uh, and if we think we can beat them. And if we don't think that they're wrong, and if we think they're efficient, and we think that we can't beat them, it is, unless we can find something else structural that's going on, no reason to think that 
betting underdogs blindly on the exchanges will make us a profit in the next few months. Uh, even though it's made a significant profit since 2019, you'll have done very well. It doesn't have any bearing about against the future. Does it make the boosts negative equity? No. Would I? Do I bet on them, by the way? No, I don't, because um, uh, account protection. I want to bet on things that aren't boosted because of the limitations that come with those. But I know plenty of people do, and we've got them up on bookiebashing.net, and I know plenty of people have been losing. Um, and this just could be a reason why. What would I do? I would continue on, um, but... It's easy for me to say when I'm not betting on them, isn't it? Right? (laughs) Because 2019, April 2019 to now is a two-year period I've had to suffer. I will have had to have suffered where they're performing extremely poorly. Uh, It should regress to the mean. And there's nothing wrong with the particular strategy. But I can see that I would have busted a bankroll by now and I wouldn't be itching to be getting back on board. So it will be an interesting to keep an eye on that and see how the favourites um, perform relative to the underdogs and the draw, which has just been broken even since that time in um, 2019. So it's not the draw, it's the underdogs that have been uh, doing well. It should be interesting to see how that goes throughout the end of the season and the start of next when the crowds are back. We're all able to actually have some fun again for the first time since we were born. All right, that's enough for the first half. Listen, guys, after the break, we have Matthew Wiley joining us uh, from Kentucky to discuss all things golf, his Golflandia podcast and his Green Square service. But just now, you are listening to the Bashcast. It's not an advert. And it's brought to you by Bookkeeper. Uh-oh.
Welcome back to the Bashcast. That was Damien Lazarus featuring Jem Cook, Into the Sun, from the album Flourish, released to... That's such a tune. I actually can't, I can't stop listening to this tune. Doesn't know how to end that, does it? So on the Bashcast this week, um, we welcome Matthew Wiley, founder of um, Green Square Golf. Matthew, hello. Hi. Yeah. Green Square Golf is our, uh, I have that site with Mike Miller and um, we could talk about that more, but then Golflandia is my podcast uh, and my Twitter account. Yeah. 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 Uh, I get those two brands mixed sometimes myself, but uh, at Wiley77 on Twitter. Yeah. Good man. Whereabouts in the uh, world are you, Matt? So here's the, here's my transition in life. I'm originally from Canada and I, um, I moved to Kentucky after I graduated university, just the natural pilgrimage of Canada to Kentucky for so many Canadians. Um, that's an absolute joke. The, <laughs> I know the, a lot the, go, and a lot of Canadians go over to Phoenix and Scottsdale. I'm aware of that transition. I hadn't heard of Kentucky. So can yeah, so I got stuck halfway. 
Um, <laughs> so I didn't have enough money back then to get to a place with palm trees. So I just landed in Kentucky. But the yeah, that's the, that is sort of the natural pilgrimage for Canadians in that just to find warmer weather, right? Yeah. Uh, and now, where are you? Where I'm in. Um, have you heard of Worcestershire sauce? Yes. Yes, yeah, so I'm it's in. Very popular in Canada. In that Canada is a dominion of the United Kingdom, right? Uh, dominion, yeah. I mean, it's part of the Commonwealth. That's right. So I grew up. I grew up with. I was telling the guys here at work with the Queen. Yeah. Uh, in every part of my life, and so <laughs> and so this crown controversy, which I know I'm not going to talk about with you, uh, I get it because that was much a part of our fascination growing up. The crown controversy, the, the, the Meghan Merkel, the Piers Morgan, the whole right. royal family stuff, right? I mean, if we were going to talk golf, but I could ask you your opinion on the Meghan Merkel Harry story if you want. What, nah, I mean, what, what do you think? I, I see. I, I. Personally, I could care less. Uh, I could I could share my thoughts on the royal family, but I will say that it is for many people in in your area of the world and even in Canada, it's an indelible part of your culture. So I would never defame it. It's just part of you know your your life. Um, I think Piers Morgan can be a dick. But <laughs> oh, yeah, a lot of people I think that think may that. be objective. That's sure. <laughs> that's, that's, that might not be headline news. <laughs> no. Um, uh, so you ended up. Um, are you, is that where you are now, Kentucky? Yeah, yeah. So I have a uh, an ad agency, creative marketing firm here in Lexington, uh, Kentucky, uh, the horse capital of the world. Oh, and, yeah, of course. Yeah. Right, and bourbon capital of the world, and the. So when in 2017, I started to really, well, really earlier than that, but I really started to take a liking to golf and handicapping and betting and then the emergence of fantasy sports, right? Mm. And I had a pretty, pretty, pretty good Twitter following at that time. And it just naturally progressed into more golf content, just the conversation around golf and analytics and, and who's going to win. And the interesting part of it was just how everything ch- resets and changes week to week. You didn't have to be part of fandom, right? You didn't have to be like we're near in the NFL and the Cincinnati Bengals, which may be the worst franchise in the history of sports. Sure. Your, your listeners may not know them. I can't have a, a comparison for a worst franchise because there isn't one. Were they nil in 16 last season or was that? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, but yeah. the season's over before it begins. <laughs> and so how do you root for that, right? Yeah. And then the dominance of gambling and fantasy sports made things gives, – gives people sort of a dopamine chase every week. And then the golf reset, you don't have to have a favorite player or they're playing badly. It doesn't matter. And so that's really, you know, uh, I started to tie in the creative side and then the content side, and then golf really just became a mainstay for me. Yeah, I like that analogy because you're you're an NFL fan. You want to find something to bet on. It will probably be related to your team. But golf, it's going to change every single week depending on the composition of the field and what's coming up. Right, but plus you and I, well, me, I know, we'll never play running back in the NFL, right? I'll never... I'll never play your version of football or soccer, but I do play golf. And so then it becomes relatable to us as well if you do play golf because it's a game of self-improvement and all these guys even playing in the players this week, every shot is about self-improvement and getting better and 
and repetitive behavior so you can relate to that, plus play the same courses. I'm not going to go run through a defensive line sure. any, anytime soon. Yeah, and now there's Matthew Fitzpatrick by the looks of things, but he can still play golf like one of the best players in the world. I tell you what, let me tell you this. Matthew Fitzpatrick is arguably one of the most unrated, underrated players in the world. People don't understand, even especially those newer to golf, how much he's won overseas and how much of a killer he is. I mean, you just have to have those. You either are able to close out these tournaments or you're not. And this is no fluke for him. I mean, I heard prior to the tournament that Fitzpatrick was really aiming to improve his approach this week. And where are we now, right? He's first. Uh, yeah, tied with Chris Kirk at this moment of time. We are um, we're day two, Friday evening. He's um, he three under par, but he's only played six holes. Chris Kirk's gone through 36. So um, yeah, he could easily be second round leader. We should have recorded this Sunday. <laughs> pretended it was Friday and then predicted the top five. Yeah. I th- Matt Fitzpatrick has been on um, my radar for first round leader, which he wasn't yesterday. Sergio was, but um, he, he does tend to get off to fast starts really well. The question is, does he close it? That's right. That's the big thing for everyone. No one really knows who finished one shot back second place, but it was just one shot over 72 holes. So can I ask you, what, and how did welcome uh, Golflandia come about? And um, that did was come about no judgment, that. the extended um, mix so, by Frankie so, Rosado so Golflandia, like Goddard I said, you know, that natural album, transition no judgment to released uh, the creative side. I love to write. I love to, um, you know, perform in my own way. Uh, I, uh, and, 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 you know, podcasts were really just emerging at that point. I'm not sure if they've plateaued or they're still an emergence. It's a pretty saturated market, but I felt like, you know, I just had a lot to say. And I thought that, you know, this is an emerging space in gambling and especially fantasy sports and golf. And back then, you know, the PGA has a good relationship with betting now and DraftKings, but back then it was completely taboo. I mean, you couldn't talk about betting on the, you know, with, with or about players. You certainly couldn't have properties of betting or fantasy sports on the course at the time. It was a much different environment. It was kind of a, you know, a rogue thing that we were doing and DraftKings really wasn't even quote unquote perceived as, as uh, legal really in the United States. But I felt like the, the, you know, with my, my uh, desire to write uh, my Twitter content, I just transformed that into a podcast and, you know, I've done it for now gosh, 182 episodes. So four plus years. Wow. Quite a few episodes in four plus years. And uh, it's interesting, the relationship between um, uh, American sports and gambling. If you ever watch the English Premiership and you see the players' shirts, they're emblazoned with all the betting companies. And we've got thousands of betting companies and all the ads, uh, the halftime break for betting companies in America. Um, The NFL uh, pretends that, gambling doesn't exist and has for a long time um, held an anti-gambling stance. Um, Was the PGA the same uh, over in America? Yes, absolutely. Like uh, four years ago when we started this, it was just not, it was, again, it was something that was off color and taboo, but the, and I had, I had, I had debates and, and very, you know, lively conversations with people at, at networks and what they, what the internal people felt was driving ratings. They still believed it was a, you know, a 
some a tangent to Tiger, his ratings. People are fans of players. And I said, really, I would doubt that because Tiger hasn't, you know, at that point been playing for a long time. Uh, and you and what in the marketing space, what we really try to drive into is what is it the consumer is actually trying to get from your brand? It's not as simple as like for beer as a concept. It's not people just drinking beer because otherwise that becomes just a commodity. It's some, it is a relationship with the label. It is that network effect. It, you know, Anheuser-Busch, I've used this a million times and Bud, Budweiser does a good job at understanding that they are really entertainment and leisure product for people at a good price. And so what what sports, and especially golf now, they really, they really uh, went up the curve on this, is that people are watching sports for that, largely for that dopamine chase. Because there's so many other options to get that energy and that drama and that tension now. There aren't nine channels on TV anymore, right? So why am I going to tune into something when I have a million other sources of content in trillions of platforms, what is it? And so, so what they've keyed in on is that the people watching four days, I mean, not the players, because that's a pretty popular tournament, but like the Arnold Palmer or the Sanderson Farms, these ratings are still being driven. Why is that? Well, because people have financial stake in it. And so now, now you can see that they're gearing content towards the viewer that they've learned to embrace. And it has been a slow marriage, but you're right. I mean, it's just like this, those people, those gamblers are awful. They don't exist. But the reality is that's your viewer. I mean, there are fans of golf, of course, naturally, and there's lots of them, but this is 2021 now. And this is going to be the consumer. And I think golf is best positioned uh, for this space. Um, this is, this is the marketplace and it's, this industry is growing. I totally agree with you. I, I watched the majors through the 2000s. Um, uh, I would tune in every time and, uh, it would always entertain me, but I would never tune in to the Arnold Palmers, uh, to the other 50 or 46 weeks of the year where the minor tournaments were on until I started betting on golf. And now I can't miss a week. In fact, it's, it's, it's kind of a staple of Sunday evening. Um, well, now, now you have NBC and the, and the PGA, which, you know, they've, they, it hasn't been a perfect uh, symbiotic relationship with content over the years, but this with the players, when they have live feed of each hole, you don't need commentary. I've learned so much about mm -hmm. the players in the course by just watching everything they're doing on every hole and you can watch any hole real time. That's, that's huge. I mean, that yeah. is a, that is all for us. Um, it's awesome. Yeah, that and the the, the PGA uh, Tour dot com Tourcast, where you're you're sort of if the cameras aren't on them, you're still able to follow shot by shot exactly what's going on. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, can I ask? Forgive my ignorance. Is uh, online betting legal or illegal in Kentucky? Um, it is not. DraftKings is because fantasy sports has been is not a game of uh, what's the terminology? I guess it's not a game of chance. It's a game of skill. Mm. Betting is not. People still do find a way to bet, so you can still bet. Uh, but betters betting online cannot operate here. Now I may be DraftKings can operate in different states, 
with their online sports book, Kentucky No, uh, probably largely to do with the horse racing industry, but and are you it's saying the, the argument from the legislators is that sports betting is not skill; it's just luck? Is that what they're saying? Yeah. Plus, it, it's also a revenue steal from different, you know, casinos and infrastructures that are here, and I think there's some concern about that. I'm not, I'm not in the politics of it, but this thing mm-hmm. is a, it, this thing is a steamroller moving at 200 miles an hour. I mean, it's just yeah. It, when it comes down, everything's about money. You follow the money. These these leagues and networks need eyeballs. And if this is the audience that's watching, they're going to find a way to marry this relationship. And it's clearly it, they're in. If they're part if they've got the label with the PGA Tour combined with DraftKings now, you got Bryson's hat with DraftKings on it. I mean, that was unthinkable 4 years mm. ago. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's it's normalizing it. It's sort Correct. Of bringing right. it to the every man. So DraftKings um now DraftKings isn't is is available in the UK, but isn't the number one go to uh, for golf betting because um, we have um, bookmakers who are trying to get one over each other in terms of the concessions that they offer. So somebody will say we're offering five places, then someone six, someone seven. Uh, in the majors, they'll be offering ten, eleven places. They're just throwing sort of concessions at the casual punter. So DraftKings hasn't taken off because of the availability of value um, in the UK. It's huge in America because it's the way to bet in 48 of the 52 states where where online gambling isn't allowed and you don't want to go to an offshore place and deposit somewhere sketchy and lose all of your money. so can I ask, what came first for you? Was it DraftKings uh, or was it Golf Analytics or was it Green Square? I mean, what was the transition into that path? Yeah, no, I, I should mention Green Square was a, a partnership with myself and Mike Miller, um, who on Twitter is Smart Golf Bets, and a lot of people follow Mike. And his stuff his stuff was the were, were the sheets that I used early on uh, to really handicap tournaments. So I'm, a, I'm big into golf form. Um, a lot of people are big into analytics. Uh, I am partial, you know, strokes gained, uh, and how a person does in certain elements of the game at the green, around the green, putting on Bermuda, uh, you know, uh, irons from the rough, but I am, I am, how is their lead in form, how they played over the last few weeks and how they've done on this course, course history and lead in form. Mm-hmm. And that's what green square golf, green square dot golf gives, the viewer and the sheets are basically, you know, this guy's missed 40 cuts. He's never made a cut at players. Doesn't matter how well you, perhaps he, she shoots uh, 125 to 150 yards with his irons. To me, that's a no play. Um, It's, it's much like horse racing. You horse racing is a form betting. I mean, how is the, how is the horse coming into this race? Can someone who's finished eighth four times win a stakes race? Right. Uh, I mean, it, for certain, his attributes don't really matter in terms of age, weight, um, handicapping, jockey. You really want to know, has this horse finished last in his last five races? Because if he has, I'm not going to put the house on him. That's right. So for me, it came uh, that relationship with Mike, and we found a green square golf for la- over the last couple of years. We we turned that into a commercial enterprise, His his sheets. Um, but I also uh, rely on, you know, how how good is someone this year around the green? How good are they 
off the tee, tee to green, not as a, not as a relative, because a lot of players claim they don't use it, but I think they do, but not as a basis for how good a player is, but how good are they relative to the field? That is the baseline. We all know that these players would wipe us off the earth if we ever tried to play them. We know that, but I want the degree of marginal difference between Jason Day and Tony Finau at certain elements of the game because, again, it's a one-stroke differential, two strokes between first and tenth sometimes over four days. That's that's a putt. That's nothing. That's a lip out. Um, so you need to have that sort of granularity and tie everything together. And then, you know, you may get, you may get as you probably know, 20% more accurate with your picks. Sure, yeah. So I, I personally use um, Green Square for short-term form analytics um it helps a lot with picking up uh course metrics especially that's the key thing that i go into green square and have a look at uh, what, what have you de- um, defined as the course metrics and then i'll go over um to the stats databases and i try not to go too far back because i think form is really recent personal it's personal opinion and then throw a few uh, of those attributes together um and see you know who's really strong and sometimes it throws up some of these outsiders uh, being um having the same form as the front of the field the top of the field which can be really um surprising how do you come about um putting together the course metrics um week by week uh, exactly what it is that is uh is going to have an effect on each course well it's it's funny because in the united states it's a joke everything is it's a it's a joke that we like to talk about week to week and that everything is tree-lined parklands right there is this week it's a tree-lined parklands it's always uh a tee to green narrow fairways uh pretty good rough uh tree-lined and then you know at, at times firm and fast greens without weather being a huge element so it's I mean, this PGA Tour is a ball striking tour. I mean, it's, you know, tee to green, great iron play, and then some moxie around the greens. I mean, it's everything. Uh, and so in terms of courses, except, I mean, especially this run in Florida, this is the, one of the toughest swings on tour mm-hmm. um, with the wind, the Bermuda, the speed, um, this, the Pete Dye architecture with sawgrass. And then you've got Jack's uh, Honda and the Bear Trap. You had the API last week, which may be one of the toughest courses on tour now. You got the Valspar. Um, it's you. This is not. That's why the best players play on this tour because the courses are so demanding. Uh, mind you, mind you, you've got two guys from your neck of the woods now leading in Lee Westwood and Fitzpatrick. And I was I was going to look up whether or not I don't believe Westwood has a great course history at Sawgrass. But man, is he ever in form, right? Yeah, I mean, last week, one of the few Europeans to actually compete in the Arnold Palmer. Yes, and because he's a he's a great iron player, you know his 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 his, his setback has always been uh, his putting, but it seems that he's gotten over that a little bit, and uh, you know it could be him and Fitzpatrick on the weekend. He was a huge price. I've got to say, he was a huge price. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was near 100 to 1 when I was looking at him. And I just bypassed it. And it's always those things that you, yes. you bypass them and go, and, that, and now it's so obvious. Now and on, dra- on, on DraftKings side of it, it's, you know, I started out doing more betting and doubles betting with the European Tour, which I love. I lo- used to love late night watching the European Tour because the courses and the regions were so interesting. 
the uh, is it Doogie Donnelly, uh, the yes, broadcast. Yeah, yeah. He, he's the best in the world. Um, for some reason, he blocks me on Twitter. I don't know. Maybe he didn't think I was being serious that he's the best in the world. What did but you say? I don't know. I, I, think I, I think I said you're the greatest human on earth. And he thought, he thought oh, he, what he an thought asshole. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But that's, that's why I really fell in love with, uh, you know, betting doubles betting, which is, you know, PGA and European tied together for, you know, uh, larger wagers. And then the fantasy thing really started to click for me, mm-hmm. uh, in, in that it was more pricing uh, and beating, let's not beating the books, but being beating the field of people who are also competing against you, and then you know maximizing ownership, um, and then like a price. For instance, Hatton this week, he was a very m- low price for someone like him. And so people, he, he won a tournament last month or the end of January. Yeah, um, and he's won in Florida, and he's one of the straightest hitters on tour, and he's a great iron player, and he's a you know one of the best putters in the world. Now. Did that work out? As of right now, not so much. Three uh, over 101st in the field. Right. <laughs> England's gave us given us two good things in Westwood and Fitzpatrick. Hatton, I don't know. Not so much right now. What's happening with players um, with, um, okay, form might be too much of a strong word, but certainly skill sets that should see them excel in courses like this. Tony Finau, Rory McIlroy. I mean, what's going on with these huge numbers that they're scoring? Well, uh, a former tour winner described it. I said, if you had a choice, if you had a choice of one thing you could be elite at, what would it be? And he said, driving the ball, meaning like distance and accuracy. Mm-hmm. Think of the top players in the world and what they do amazingly well. Brooks, uh, DJ. Jim oh. Furyk always sits at the top of the accuracy um, charts. And he doesn't drive long, but he's no. always in the middle of the fairway. And if you look at the mix of people who won the players, one of the toughest tournaments to win on tour, you've had a leaderboard with Rory, mm-hmm. uh, Fina, uh, uh, Furyk second, Johnny Vegas, uh, Eddie Pepperell, another brilliant uh, character in golf. And the second thing is elite hands, great hands, wedge play. Like that's the underrated aspect of Dustin Johnson, right? His soft hands, uh, his his ability to to scramble for par. Webb Simpson, who's, you know, always does well here. Mm. Patrick Reed, who's won a Masters. Um, even Sergio. You, you, you have, Jason Day, you have an inability to recover from missed iron shots and you you can pull yourself out of the tournament because everything is greens backward. Uh, how well am I putting? How how confident am I? Am I around the green game? And then it's really those two things. And so if you have a guy who has is great driver of the ball and great wedge player, good hands. Putting is you know putting changes week to week, as we all know. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I I never feel I could see Rory ever make a putt. I just feel like none of them, he doesn't putt well. It's just that none of them seem to drop for him. And so there's a lot of variance in putting, but those two things, and then you'll have the top players in the now, world. Now, that, that, that wasn't always the case. No. But something changed a few years ago, a couple like pre-lockdown, I feel like. you know. And he's had three different putting coaches. I think he's with Brad Faxon right now, but I feel that Rory plays better when he's angry, when he's has got a shot of adrenaline in him. So he's just had 
this baby, his first baby, so perhaps he's happy in life and that makes for a bad sportsman. You know, you want an angry sportsman. <laughs> but you think about the best players on, in the world. John Rahm, incredible driver of the ball, incredible hands. Justin Thomas, same. Morikawa, same. Cantlay, um, you know, every, he's, got, he's got it all. I mean, you think of guys with, with, with games without flaws, I could probably name three or four. Um, so yeah, that's that's what, what, what about you, some of the youngsters that you see coming through? You got Will Zalatoris, and um, we got Tyler Mc, uh, McCumber, um, who are just like every week consistent after consistent. Um, do you see any of these sort of you know, I don't think we'll ever see anyone coming through with dominance of um, a Tiger Woods, but coming through to sort of sit up there like Dustin and the top two or three in the world for a few years. I think the guy, I mean, Hovland, um, his ball striking is off the charts. Yeah, uh, it, I think it, that Hovland does stand out. He does. Morikawa. I think Morikawa's got everything. He's got everything. I mean, he's already won a WGC. He's won a major. Um, Very similar guys in terms of the way they're coming up, Hovland and Morikawa. He's they? the only one who's done that before 23 or 24. Oh, wow. Then mm-hmm. and him and Tiger, that's it. Uh, but everyone's young now. Everyone's so good and young. No, they're all fearless, right? I mean, they just—they're mm. not afraid to win. And once you win, you have—you start this parabolic ascension, because winning begets money, begets sponsorships, ability to take breaks, time off. You don't have to grind on the Corn Ferry Tour. You get better. I mean, you have the ability to get better. You hire coaches, teams, uh, private jets. Um. Because the other side of the fence with the guys who, you know, grind it week to week, I mean, it's costly. It's risk-taking. It's it's expensive. Uh, you're a contractor with the tour. So I think Morikawa, uh, Fitzpatrick, another one, um, you know, they're all young, really. There's pressure on the way up, uh, but there's a lot more pressure on the way down. <laughs> yes. For all I love them. Cam Smith. I mean, you have an Australian audience. What's it called? A Tennessee waterfall. Is that his haircut? I've never heard of that. <laughs> so he's got that mullet that comes down the back of mm. his um, back of his baseball cap, back of his head. He described it as a Tennessee waterfall, which I'd never heard of, but I think it's a fantastic turn of phrase. There are great golfers, and there are there are guys who just know how to win. And if mm. you looked at Cam Smith at the Masters, the guy was he could not he figured out how to hit shots. He he is fearless. He's 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 so tough. And and he's just a killer. Uh, Max Home was another one that, that yeah. I like in that way. He stands out definitely. They had the shoulders back. They don't get phased. Like can be like Dustin Johnson and walk off bad shots, which I think Rory may sometimes have a difficulty doing. Yeah. Um, I love Cam Smith. Uh, an option for the Masters, do you reckon? Absolutely. Every year, every year, you <laughs> ch- Cam Smith at the Masters. Louis Cam Smith. Finau. And again, Louis Eustace, I mean, he's not that old. I was surprised actually when I saw his age because it seemed like he came around, he went away, and now he's in a resurgence, you know? I'm I'm a sucker for immaculate swings, and Louis mm. is just artwork. Who's um, the opposite? Who's the opposite? Probably, probably, I, I mean, Jordan Spieth swing's getting a little better. Mm-hmm. Um Furyk's not the not the most you know artful swing. It gets it done for him. It does. Uh, but couples, Morikawa, my God, uh, it's just it's just artwork. Um, yeah, 
So, so can, can, if I'm looking um, next week at the uh, whatever whatever tour tournaments are on next week, or perhaps the Masters in a few weeks' time, yeah. if I've got a choice of um, one of the great things about Green Square, I really like it, is that it, the ease with which I can skip back the previous years, uh, 2021, 2020, 2019, 18, 17, see who won it, see who came in the top 10. There's a side-by-side comparison of a ranking of the field in terms of their odds. That's really useful, actually, because it really stands out when there are some tournaments where you can tell there are 100 to 1 guys that win this year after year. And then other tournaments, um, it, it literally is just the, the the top of the field that seem to excel here. The market gets it right, if you like. Um, if I was to focus on that or if I was to focus more on course metrics um, and things like that, what, what would you primarily be taking out of there as a data point? Uh, for which course? Just in general? Well, U.S. Masters, let's go Augusta. Okay, Augusta. So Augusta is a course, um, number one, I, was, I, had the, I had the good fortune of going with uh, my friend Ray Floyd Jr. in 2019. I, we've skipped a whole era because of COVID, uh, but the year Tiger won. And what you don't, what some people who may not have experienced it um, is that Augusta is a mountain. I mean, you're, it is it is so undulating and hilly. And just the walk itself, because the complex in the area between, there are villages between holes, between the second and third hole and fourth hole, there's a whole, you know, village, restaurant, um, outdoor events. Um, the, the, the size, the scale, the, you never have a flat lie. You have to be such a good iron player. I mean, you look at Tiger, why he wins there. Iron player, great touch. And what Rafe said, because his dad won twice or once, um, is that you have to have great hands. Sergio, great hands. Tiger, Phil, Spieth, Bubba Watson. They can shot make into really firm 13 to 15 stimp greens on a rock. Uh, So what you look for there is guys who can make shots, guys who can flight the Patrick Reed, another one, maybe the most underrated on tour. Sure. Guys who can shot make, good iron play, um, and can run a hot putter. Who can, like Cam Smith is that guy. He can, he can, he can use his hands to make shots from anywhere into greens that if you miss, um, like on, was it 14? Uh, You're dead. Uh, Long. Um, can't lay another one. So I would look for guys who, who have like Louie, Louie underrated hands. One of the, one of the better around the green guys on tour. Everyone thinks he's a ball striker. He is. So I would look for guys in form, obviously good, good iron players, but guys with soft hands who can, who can shot make. Um, yeah. Sometimes I'm one, I, I always, I'm a little bit wary of the guys that have form on the European tour and then they bring that over to the American tour. Guys like Hovland, um, who for some reason, you know, uh, there's no reason why if you're hitting the ball 340 yards on one tour, you shouldn't be hitting it on another tour. But that translation and the travel and the new environment, it does seem to affect a few of them. Um, and it's difficult to know if you can really take all of those stats and form from the one place and just drop it into a, a, a new tour. The firmness of the greens, uh, the speed uh, of play, the absolute uh, insanity of the 
crowds that are at Augusta, especially the American audience, it's it's pretty bright lights, and um, and it, that that's that's one of the challenges to be a PGA Tour player is that you can just push through that. I certainly could not, um, but that is one of the. I mean, but you still see a lot of Europeans come over and perform well uh, at Augusta. I mean, good iron players. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Thomas Peters. I don't know if you follow him very much. Yeah, Tom, I mean, again, Thomas Peters, classic example. Thomas Peters and Thomas Detry, they're just week after week just performing top 10, top 20. They're always up there. Um, uh, another player I was talking to about Thomas Peters when he was on tour with him, he used to text me and say he like he he was, I won't say what he said because it's probably a, more of a PG podcast, but he he just you, he was you can swear the, you go go it, ahead swear for your w- fucking life <laughs> <laughs> it was like porn to him i mean just <laughs> okay. watching thomas peters he had everything i mean he's just uh and he's he's bright and i just I, I genuinely want more golf of thomas peters right uh but you do see a lot of guys coming over from europe and playing well i mean these young guys are just fearless honestly yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just how they're they're dead how they're programmed and can I ask where Sergio's come from? I mean, honestly, where was he last year, the year before? Something's happened. He's 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 sat down with a psychologist or something like that, and it's fantastic to see this research. I'm not sure if it's if it was the he was struggling with some wrist injuries, but he named the two top courses he likes in the world are Valderrama, which is amazing, mm-hmm. and then uh, and then Sawgrass. And he just lights why I mean, some people are not course history truthers and there's like 50-50 of us and I am. And something just brings out a spark in Sergio here. Um, yeah. I don't think, I don't know if he can sustain it. Yeah, uh, I mean, he's fallen away a little bit after day one. Oh, that's it, fallen away. He's in tied fifth, so it's not exactly too bad just now. But um, yeah, the form he's showing is, it's fun to watch because he's a likable guy as well. Yes, so I've got three questions. We're sort of 35 minutes in, so I'm going to start um, thinking to wrap this up. But I've got three questions for you just to wrap things up. Okay, firstly, how are you doing in the Millionaire Maker this weekend? Well, let me see. I had no Lee Westwood. Uh, I had – so uh, not a lot of Chris Kirk. I had no Sergio. So, so far, not great. Any Harris uh, Englishes? I had no Harris English. I, he, he is one of the players I just can't define his game. Mm-hmm. It's Harris English – uh, Hudson Swafford, Nick Watney. Those are the three. I just can't. I want to, ne- oh, I, I want to tell you, we have a tracker where we push out plus EV bets week after week after week. Harris English is a decent proposition. I don't know why the bookmakers price him up so high. He did get the win at the beginning of the year. He may never again. Though. <laughs> so. The two, the two guys that always will, if you do, if you run models statistically, the two guys that are mm. always there that never seem to perform for you to me are Harris English and Russell Henley. Yep, Russell Henley. I've, I, I'm all over him this week, and he's not going to make the cut. Nope. And um, Stuart Sink is another one. High price. He, he, he never finishes highly, but he's always, for some reason, the data suggests that he should do better than he does. There are multiple addictions I have, and I've actually said to DraftKings, you know, in a jokingly way, please ban me from ever playing Louis, Hideki, <laughs> Ricky Fowler, uh, Robert Streb. Yeah, Ricky Fowler. I've fallen for that enough times as well myself. Yes, like, this I is love the time Ricky. where he turns it around. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, 
The second question I have is um, uh, if people want to go and check out your podcast or your data service, and I recommend thoroughly both, how do they go and find it? Okay, so if you're on Twitter at Wiley77, W-I-L-E-Y 77, the podcast is Golflandia. You can find that on any podcast platform, Golflandia. And then Green Square, which is the which is the form service uh, in terms of course history form. And I should say it's for it's not just PGA, it is all tours. LPGA, Ferry, ladies. Everything. So because some people do multi-tour bets. So that is Green Square dot golf green square dot golf good man and um third and finally and i asked this of um of everyone that comes on so this is a quiz now the last few people that were on were all european so you're at mm. already a handicap here but uh, i have a quiz question for you. you've got 30 seconds to answer this I'm just going through um, your notes to see if you prepped me for it so I can cheat, but you didn't. So, yeah, okay. no, 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 unfortunately, I didn't. I've, I've, I've dropped this on you with absolutely no preparation. All right. There are seven European capital cities that begin with the letter B. Starting now, can you name them? Uh, 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 Berlin. Okay, you got uh, one. Uh, so you're not, by the way, bottom of the league table. I'm telling you that now. You, you, can I get five seconds back? Uh, no, no, no. You've had this is eight seconds in now, just to let you know. Okay. Uh, Budapest? Is that one? Yeah, very good. That's two. Uh, Belgium's a country, right? Someone's going to say that. Belgium uh, is Bru- a country. Brussels? Brussels uh, is three. You've got nine seconds to go, and you're doing very well, actually. Uh, five seconds. Belgrade. Belgrade. Bang. Got four. That's and enough. that is four. Well done. Belgrade. Um, uh, okay, uh, Matt, I'm just noting that down, running the numbers, getting the calculation, and you are joint top of the leaderboard for the uh, European cities that begin with the letter B. Congratulations. You're, you can either you it. can either attach that to my Americanism or my Canadian education, either one. I think, I'm sure Canadians would rather me say it was yeah. Canada's. <laughs> I think that, that's a brilliant effort. Where did Belgrade come from? Serbia, capital of Serbia. Well done. So, hey, listen, Matt, I appreciate you giving up um, half an hour of your afternoon. Thank you very much for coming on. And if, uh, yeah, if anyone wants to go and check out um, those platforms of yours, I, I recommend them. Um, thank you, Matt. Cheers. Appreciate Thanks. it. Anytime. Thanks. Did the earth move fire? Did the earth move fire? Did the earth move fire?